Grab your Bibles with me and turn to the New Testament letter of 1 John. You'll, if you're new to Scripture, you'll find that towards the very back of your Bible, uh, just after 2 Peter, just before Jude and Revelation. Uh, again, if you need a Bible, we have some in the back of the room. I'd love for you to uh, be bringing your Bible with you, becoming familiar with God's Word. Uh, like me, with the amount of time we spend going through these different books, your pages are all tattered and worn out, and that's great, and notes, and that we're in the Word of God. You know, it's, it's the words moving in our lives that matters, not that our Bible looks pretty, right? So, um, so let's use it and know it and grow in it. Um, I'm thankful about this particular portion of John's letter. It means a lot to me. I remember years ago, I, I got to preach this portion of this letter. Uh, and praise God for sanctification. I too am growing in many ways. I'm thankful for your patience with me as your preaching pastor. And um, uh, today I want to preach part one of our time in First John chapter two, twelve through fourteen. Three verses. We're going to spend two sermons to get through this. Uh, that time when I preached this passage in the younger years, I preached verse twelve through twenty-seven in one sermon. Uh, and we were flying, and I just laughed at some of the lack of detail and many things that were missed. But praise God, again, he's growing us. He did a mighty work in us back then, and I believe he will today as we aim to be faithful uh, with these things. I love this portion of the letter. It emphasizes certainty. John, God ultimately wants the beloved, the family of God, to have certainty in Christ despite all the ways that the world and false teachers are coming at us with lies and persecution, deception. And so I want to look at the passage and its whole and then uh, make a couple general observations before we dig in um, to the meat of it. First John chapter 2, 12 through 14. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I am writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. First, who is John talking to, and what is his goal here in this portion of his letter? John mentions three groups of people here. We clearly see them. Little children, fathers, and young men. What's important for us to understand is that in this, he's not singling out a few select groups of the redeemed and leaving the rest on the side. He's not leaving out women. The reason why we know that is because all that he's speaking to here applies to all Christians without biblical distinction. As there are certain points with biblical distinction that focus on different um, seasons of faith or, or roles within the church or the home. What John is doing here is using family references and season of life references to speak to the entire church who would circulate this letter. And if there are any 
distinctions that only some theologians would even agree might be present here. It's only that reference to fathers might be to regard more mature believers and references to young men as less mature believers. We already established that the references to little children is for the church as a whole. That said, it's my conviction along with many that this distinction is of little to no priority when we are to focus on what these endorsements are for the true body of Christ. And so we're not going to get overly hung up on breaking that down. John wants the church to be emboldened in their certainty. And and in affectionate ways, in family ways, in season of life ways, he's, he's getting to that main point he wants them to hear. This is something we all can grow in, is it not? More certainty? And this brings us to the goal of the, this portion of the letter. John has great affection for his readers. And we see this in verse 1 of this chapter. John uh, has reference to his audience as little children. And we need to make sure that we rightly understand that that is a reflection of his affection for them and his authoritative position over them. It is not meant to be belittling or demeaning. That's not what he's doing here. Uh, John aims to convey his deep love and affection for those in the family of God. Church, we are God's kids of grace. Amen? Adopted and brought near to be a forever family. Our unity in Christ and God's love at work in us should propel us truly and deeply to love each other in all the ways that God calls us to and all the ways He equips us to. John wants his beloved in Christ to be certain and not to be undone. Like Paul, John doesn't want the believers to be tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. John Stott, Dr. John Stott, once spoke to this reality in his commentary of this letter. He says, against the backdrop of the current uncertain postmodern world, To read the letters of John is to enter into another world altogether. For its marks are assurance and knowledge and confidence and boldness. John wrote the gospel of John for unbelievers to arouse their faith. The letters for believers in order to deepen their assurance. His desire for the readers of the gospel was that through faith they might receive life. For the readers of the letters, that they might know they already had it. God wants us to be so grounded, church, in who we are in Christ. Listen to his press here. Listen to the consistency of it. I just just want to highlight this out of our passage. Verse 12, your sins are forgiven. Verse 13, you know, you have You know, verse 14, you know, you are, 
you have. See him driving his point. You are, you know. This is affirmation language. These are reminders of who we are in Christ. It's a plea for certainty among the believers. He's saying, don't forget. Don't lose sight. Don't doubt. Don't question. You know. You have. You are. Be certain. Disciples family, I want this for you. I know that there are many things right now that feel very uncertain. So many things feel out of control. Um, or maybe like they're slipping away. So many questions about what is coming. What will things be like? God's love for us, though, church, is not shown in fixing those circumstances as our flesh often wants the fix to be applied. His love for us is to solidify who we are in Christ, in great certainty, amidst the madness. As Christians, we're not to reject His work in our lives, however He would ordain it to be. Longing for grounding only in things that are temporary. No, we have to learn to embrace who He is and how He is at work in us, in this world. That we would walk by faith and not by sight. Now, with that under our feet, who we're talking to, the goal, let's dive deeper into these verses. Look with me at verse 12. We'll spend some time on a few points of emphasis here and then pick up the second part of this on the 29th, Lord willing. 1 John 2.12 I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. First, John assures them that they are forgiven. This is a game-changing truth. If you belong to Jesus, your sins are are forgiven. John already spoke to this in a very profound and clear way in 1 John 1.9, very famous passage. We spent time there already. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does it mean that God forgives us? Forgives our sins. God's forgiveness means that we're no longer indebted to Him because of our sin. Think about that. We have to understand that the penalty we owed for our sin was not small. Think of the depth of a lifetime of sinful, selfish rebellion against God's holiness and perfect will and command for our life. That's a lot of debt that we racked up, is it not? Romans 6.23 helps us see this when it says, For the wages of sin is death. We earn the wage of death because of our sin. Think of how much, how, how much wage we have earned because of our sin. Second, the penalty of our sin also means separation from Him who is holy, Him who is life. And thirdly, it means eternal suffering. These are the real consequences of our sin, the real consequences of our debt in sin. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction 
away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. See, both of those applied in passing quickly in this one passage. Separated from the perfect, glorious presence of of the Lord and reaping eternal punishments. The price we owed for our guilt and sin is truly our worst problem in this life. Are you guilty of looking at other things as a greater issue, a greater concern? Please, I plead with you, no cancer diagnosis, no abandonment of a parent, no betrayal of a spouse, no disobedience of your kids, no jail time, just or unjust, no physical impairment, no losing of a loved one is as bad of a problem as spiritual death and separation now and forever from the holy God unto eternal suffering. Let the weight of that sink in. Let the truth of that go to work. And so in it, then we see the beauty and the good news of what John is saying here. Those who are still in their sin, apart from faith in Jesus, righteously deserve the consequences that God's made clear, for they have fallen short of the holy standard of God. Those who remain in their sin and deny the gospel of the Lord, who do not submit themselves to Jesus as Lord and Savior, God is faithful and will bring His judgment and His wrath. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What glorious news this is to have all of our debt forgiven, to be reconciled to the Holy God, for Him to forgive wretched sinners who deserve, who have earned what's been removed because of Jesus? If you are not saved here today, see your greatest need is for salvation. And I pray it be God's holy will to give you eyes to see and ears to hear that you would confess that sin before God and trust your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior and be saved. For you who are saved, who God's given saving faith by His grace alone, we must never grow numb or, or, or bored or used to this glorious reality of God's forgiveness in our lives. We were dead, and by grace He made us alive in Christ. Wipe clear our records so that He, the Holy God, can have now a reconciled relationship with us now and forever. This is good news. God is the prize. Life with God. Reconciliation with God. Not heaven. Not to be free of the burdens. No, that we know God. That we get to walk with Him and enjoy Him and live for Him. Paul speaks of God's forgiveness of those who trust in Christ alone well in Colossians. Let me read you a couple quick passages. Colossians 2, 13-14 says, You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. This is good news. Our certificate of death, which our sin earned us, is nailed to the cross of Jesus. He forgave us, do you see, all our sins. Look at 
Paul's words in chapter 1 of Colossians 13 through 14. He, speaking of God, the Father had delivered us from the domain of darkness that we were enslaved, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom, in Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Possessors of the forgiveness of sins. We've been redeemed. That word redeemed means to gain or regain possession of something in exchange for payment. The payment is Jesus' blood. We are redeemed from separation from God, from deserving His wrath due our sin, unto being reconciled to God, eternally loved and secured by Him. This is good news. This is good news and see it for what it is. Maybe you've been in prison falsely for the last 10 years and there's an opportunity by which you will finally be freed. How much you'd be leaning in right now to understand the nuances of what that freedom means. This is way bigger than a decade. This is way bigger than a moment in life. This is eternity that God has provided salvation for those who do not deserve it. This is the grace of God by which we praise His holy name. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who are born in sin and proved to choose sin, guilty, deserving God's wrath, are by grace saved, forgiven, set free because of Jesus' substitution on the cross in our place. And it is finished. Christian, do you fully and rightly know that you are forgiven of all of your sins? Past, present, and future. They are paid for by Jesus. Are you guilty of thinking that one or some of those are not covered by what Jesus did? Do you see that if you feel that way, then, then what you think is that Jesus' blood is not big enough or good enough to cover your sin? That's an indictment on God. He is able more than able in all of His perfection. Do you rightly see that Jesus paid for it on the cross, that it is finished. Are you certain that you are forgiven? You need to be. You were an enslaved sinner before Christ, and now you are a forgiven saint in Christ. Because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, you've been separated and set apart for God. You are His possession. You are called holy because of Jesus' righteousness imputed upon you. It doesn't depend on what you have done or what you do. It depends on what Jesus has done unto completion. The point I want to bring for us all today is that our new identity in Christ means we are forgiven. Did we deserve it? No way. Not in a thousand years, but that's why it's called amazing grace. That word is not big enough to really do it justice, and yet we throw it on things that are small. Your new identity in Christ means you are forgiven. No longer is your identity a sinner. Your identity is now a saint because of who you are in Christ. 
This is not a reflection that you've figured out how to live a saintly life. It's a reflection of who you are in Christ. All praise to God. This is a game-changing reality and one that John wants the beloved to be certain of amidst the false teachers and the ways that the world is coming at them. Look with me at the added clarity we have here. It's important to know. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His namesake. There's a clarity here that can cause us to misread this. And so let me make a point, and then I'll bring us to the correction. It is true that God saves, forgives, and adopts ultimately for God's glory. Soli Deo Gloria. This is true. Psalm 106, 6 and 8. Both we and our fathers have sinned, yet He saved them for His namesake, that He might make known His mighty power. Praise God. Romans eleven thirty six. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. It is also true that God, through Christ alone, and by nothing that we contribute or merit, is the one do praise for our salvation. He is the only one we are to boast in. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 makes this so clear. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. When you get to heaven, you will have nothing to boast in but Christ alone. You will not be so arrogant to stand before God and say, God, you did all this, all this 99%. I'm so glad I did my part. No, you will fall on your face and have nothing to say but the name of Jesus. To boast in Jesus alone. This is also true, church. While both of these are true, that God saves for His glory, and we have nothing to boast in but Jesus, our simple reading of this verse in the common English translation may lead us to think that, that, that this is what John's point is here. As he says, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Again, this is true, but that's not what John's saying here. A closer look at the Greek, our English word for here is the word dia in the Greek, and it means through or by means of. So hear it with me. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven by means of His namesake or through His namesake. In other words, we are forgiven only because of Christ who suffered and satisfied God's wrath due our sin in our place. John wants to drive home to the believers that they are indeed forgiven and this is only possible because of Christ. He's already made this point a couple times in this letter, 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. We're cleansed from all sin because of the blood of Jesus. Again, in 1 John 2, 2, He is the propitiation for our sins. He's going to make this point again later in the letter, driving it home. What is he trying to drive home? That we who belong to Jesus, who have trusted our lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior, are forgiven 
And we should be of this the utmost confident and not worried about it or second-guessing it ever. Why? Because our forgiveness is based solely on Christ's atonement on our behalf. That's why you can be so certain of it. It's not an event that was done incompletely or haphazardly. It was planned and executed perfectly by the Almighty God Himself. The problem with false teachers in John's day and in generations since is that humans are guilty of wanting to declare that there's other ways to God without Jesus. Dr. Michael Horton, a professor of apologetics and theology, Westminster Seminary here in Escondido, California, said it well, and I quote, We do not find him. He finds us. That emphasis was the cause of the cry, Christ alone. Jesus was the only way of knowing what God is really like. The only way of entering into a relationship with Him as Father instead of judge. The only way of being saved from His wrath. End quote. Church, the sad reality is many don't rightly understand this. And so they miss out on the certainty it brings. Are you forgiven? Are you saved? And they're quickly thinking about their own lives lived. They're, they don't first think about Jesus alone. His perfect atonement on their behalf. That, that's what's on our minds. That's the rock we stand on. The completed and finished work of Jesus. Our current culture, though, with all this relativism, it, it, it's working its way even to evangelicalism. Sadly, not only members, but teachers alike. We live in a day where popular opinion loves to dilute the saving work of Jesus alone. Or to add to his work in some way to attain a success, uh, an acceptable relationship with God. This is heresy. This can't be. It's a troubling reality that many in this view are really building their lives on another gospel. To set aside the authoritative word of God and insert our own preferences, ideas, or desires is not only to flirt with eternal damnation, but is to lead others to follow us there. No, our certainty comes from knowing that it depends on Jesus alone and that he finished the job. I absolutely love the words of Peter about the source of our living hope. That our hope is living, church. It's not dead. It's not parked on the side of the road. It's living. Listen, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3-5. through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Why are we certain that we are forgiven? Because Jesus is resurrected. Because it is finished, and God confirmed that in the resurrection of Christ. That's Peter's point here. The hope is living because we hang it on a resurrected Christ. 
not one who's dead like every other one who tried to do it, tried to make a way. Jesus is resurrected. And we are secured by God's power and not our own. Christian, when you walk the hallways of this uncertain world, do you walk in the confidence and certainty of the resurrected Christ who is your Savior and your Lord? Please, be certain. Live in faith and not by sight in these things. This is John's longing for his hearers. This is my longing for you today. John's driving home the fact that our sins are forgiven by the means of His namesake. Jesus, the eternal God the Son, is in the perfect and completed work of Jesus alone in our place that we're forgiven and saved. It's because it's based on Jesus alone that we can have the utmost confidence that we're not ruining it. Right? If your hand is partially to be credited, then I get why you would worry then I get why you would have a lack of certainty. Praise God. It's not based on you. It's based on Him alone. Acts 4.12 There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Not only does John John want us to be certain that we are forgiven in Christ, but that we know God. Look with me at the next portion here. He says in verse 13, I am writing to you fathers because you know Him who is from the beginning. In verse, the latter part of verse 13, he says, I write to you children because you know the Father. He says it again in verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know Him who is from the beginning. Church, we know Him. Please understand, you must know Christ personally or you have nothing. You cannot just know about Him. You must know Him. For those who are truly saved and belonging to God, we know Christ as our Lord and Savior. Jesus highlighted the importance of this in His high priestly prayer. Intimate time between him and the Father in prayers recorded in John chapter 17. He says in verse 3, This is eternal life, that we know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We must understand correctly what it means to know Jesus personally. Adam and Eve were separated from God because of their sin, their Relationships were severed because of sin. Sin separates us from knowing God personally. Okay, we can know about Him, but we don't know Him. Right? You're guilty of having run into someone famous at one point. You're kind of guilty of talking about that person in such a way where you kind of make other people feel like, yeah, I know this person. And you really just kind of met him one day. Had dinner across the table. Right? No, you don't know them. Right? I saw a sign once that said, do smart people believe in Jesus? Think about it. Do smart people believe in Jesus? The reality is just the wrong question. Because it's not about how smart you are. The demons knew a lot about Jesus, and they're damned. They they believe Jesus is God the Son. They, 
But believing about him is not enough. Having lots of knowledge about him is not enough. You must believe into him. You must trust your life to him and know him personally. Church, we have to stop giving credit to family or friends who say they believe that there's a God and somehow we, we, we say that's enough. It's not. It's insufficient. The vital importance is how they believed into Jesus. Meaning they're not dependent on themselves. Jesus is the Lord of their lives. They've died to themselves. They've confessed their sin and they've trusted their lives to Jesus. It doesn't matter if they know about God from afar. They logged a lot of years in church. They've read a lot of books. they got a lot of time in the Bible in jail. Do they know Him personally? There will be no eternal life for those who only know about God. Is there a relationship there? A longing, a connection, an obedience. You reach crossroads and you, and you are convicted by the Spirit. You do what honors God. You are helped by the church. You're not spiritually saying, I've got this thing with God, but I'm completely doing it my own way. That's not to know the Lord Jesus. Run into people like, no, 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 I'm good. I got Jesus. I just, I'm not really into the church. I'm like, I don't know what Bible you're reading. You don't love the Lord and not love his church. And I, I thought, I'm good with God, but I kind of just make my own way in what I do. No, you don't. You're not submitting to God if you're not obeying his word. Do you know him personally? There's a relationship. There's a connection. Jesus himself said with very sobering words in Matthew 7, a reality that many sadly will face. Many who were busy with religion but never knew Jesus. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? It's a pretty impressive resume. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The good news is that God secures all those that he will save. All of his sheep will know him in saving faith. I love that salvation belongs to the Lord. Churches who don't get that teach that. I just, I just don't get it. John 10, listen to Jesus' words. Jesus, John 10, verse 27 through 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Amen? One more clarity for those of us who are saved. I want to ask that we are so mindful to not boast in the fact that we know a lot. A real temptation for Reformed churches like ours 
who really love God's Word and value a right study of it and a a faithfulness to it. We're not content to just do church for tradition's sake. We want to be obedient to the Word in every way. This is good. But often, many people who run into Reformed circles can be guilty of praising the truths of solid Reformed doctrine more than they praise the God it points them to. We must value sound doctrine, a faithful study and teaching of God's Word, but never should we give praise or boasting to it over God. Our love for God's Word and sound doctrine must propel us into love and praise for God, or it's all for naught. It doesn't matter how right it is. We miss God. We miss it all. Jeremiah 9, 23-24, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Church, I encourage you to study well with the best theologians and reformers of ages past. Be faithful to it. Get excited about growing in God's Word. We need this. We need a fervor for God's Word like too often too many Christians are just without. Maybe one of the biggest wake-up calls that God wants to do in your life right now is to get you abiding in the vine and in love with, with your walk with Him, your relationship with Him, your, your, your time in the Word. I, I keep coming back to Psalm 1 lately. There's this beautiful passage in Scripture that we just meditate on and they continue to go to work. And Psalm 1 is very memorizable and it's very visual, so it's one of those easier chapters to memorize. I said chapter, you're like, wow, that sounds like a lot. There's only six verses in Psalm 1. And it's beautiful. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or sits in the seat of scoffers, goes in the ways of sinners. But but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water whose roots go deep, and the wind blows, and he's secure. But those who do not delight in the law of the Word are like chaff who are blown in the wind to and fro. And, and I'm sitting with, with people I love, and I'm, and I'm walking this out. And I'm, uh, the kids and I sat and del- delved into this passage there, and it was wonderful. And with the motorcycle club, we, we dug into it the other day. And, and I'm just a continu- with the guys I'm discipling, we dug into it. It just continues to resurface. And why? Because some of us are guilty lately of getting kind of undone at how everything's going. And so I'm just asking, who are you sitting with? Who are you spending time with? Who are you listening to? What's the noise you're letting into your eyes and your ears? No wonder you're feeling so undone. You're sitting with the world. You're concerned with the world. No wonder you like chaff that's getting blown around. Turn the noise off and delight day and night in the law of the Lord. And be reminded that although many are going to die and people are going to be persecuted, God is on the throne and He's at work. He's at work perfectly unto His plan. We who belong to Him are people of faith. 
We don't get caught up in the noise and in in all the nonsense. That's the work of a lost world. May our roots be deep in the truths of God, in the promises of God, in the faithfulness of God. That in that, our faith is seen and shown to our kids, to our spouses, to those God puts around us. They go, how are you settled? Where is this peace? It's in Jesus. Let me tell you about him. Church, do you see the difference? Are you guilty of sitting way more with the news and social media and all the chitter-chatter than you are with the Word? It says day and night. Are you guilty of of just getting a five-minute protein bar in God's Word and calling it good? Like that's a diet that grows a, a, a strong faith in the Lord? No. I encourage you, find habits where you're in the Word day and night. Don't turn the TV on in the evening until you've had an opportunity to circle up in God's Word again. Let that be a marker of how your family goes and moves. I'm convicted by these same things. I just got done telling you this is at work in my life. I'm sharing it with those around me, so now I'm sharing it with you. None of this is in my notes. (laughs) God is good and at work in the most amazing way. It's just a little testimony time in the middle of the sermon. I circle back. It's not enough to know about Jesus You must know him personally. Are you you sitting with him? Are you being still? Are you growing? Are you trusting his word? Are you talking with him in prayer? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know what the real sweet baseline good news of that statement is? There is a way to know God. The second thing that's crazy good is Jesus is that way. He makes it possible to know him. Do you know Jesus? Did did you catch in Jesus' words in the high priestly prayer, John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent? You must know the Father and the Son. Jesus says, you don't know me, you don't know the Father. You cannot honor God unless you give equal honor to the Son, Jesus Christ. Any religion, any teacher that tries to honor God but gives no credit to Christ has nothing. God is three in one. Much of John's rebuke against the false teachers of that day was that they would claim to be good with God without knowing Jesus. That cannot be. You must know Jesus. So here he is to the beloved. He's saying to the redeemed saints, you know Jesus. Therefore be certain in the fact that you belong to God. In all of these lies, and all the things that you're being told that are mistruths, you are reconciled to him. Be certain, be firm in this. Notice the important clarity he adds here. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. He says it in 13 and again in 14 verbatim. We know him who is from the beginning. This is a very important emphasis added because the false teachers were saying that Christ was not eternal. He was created. He came onto the scene later. We're going to see this elevated in 1 John 4.3. The reality is time hurries on and seasons change, but the eternal God stays the same. And so two huge takeaways we get from this that we can fly right by. See them with me. Number one, Jesus is truly eternal, and he's not created. 
foundational truth of Christian doctrine and where our faith is rooted. Number two, that Jesus is unchanging and therefore a reliable rock to stand on in an uncertain and always changing world. Let's look at the first and then the second. Reminder of the eternality of Jesus. We saw this in our first sermon in this series. John, 1 John 1.1 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. John opens these verses with this stout Christological grounding for his hearers. That which is from the beginning. It's the same way he spoke in the opening of his gospel. John 1.1 In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Speaking of the eternality of Jesus. The point is, if Jesus is in the beginning, then He Himself is without beginning. He's there. It's a negative way of saying that He is eternal. Praise God. Jesus speaks clearly of this essential truth. Back to the high priestly prayer of John 17. Look at verse 5. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before the beginning. The glory I had with you, Father. John is trying to ground his hearers in this most essential truth about Jesus' eternality. Jesus, who our faith is built on. Jesus is the one who is able, more than able, to teach us, command us, model for us. The only one able to substitute himself for us in death, pay for our sin to satisfy God's wrath, do us, rise again to conquer death, thereby being the firstborn of the redeemed. He is Jesus Christ. He is the eternal Son of God. Everything has its beginning in Him. Paul confirms this when he speaks to the church in Colossae, saying, speaking of Jesus, Colossians 1.17, He is before all things. Again, this stood in direct opposition to what the false teachers were saying. And so John is saying to true believers, Know Him who is from the beginning. And he's saying this in a way to solidify that they truly belong to the one true God. Again, the second wonderful emphasis we derive from John's word here is that to be grounded in steadfast, faithful, the steadfast, unfaithful, unchanging nature of Jesus. This is a huge help to us, church, in an always changing world in an uncertain world, that our Lord and Savior is unchanging, a lasting rock under our feet. Hebrews 13.8 famously says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Moses prayed in Psalm 91-2, Lord, You've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever You had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. God says in Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Our search for certainty in an uncertain world is only satisfied when we ground ourselves in the only one who is truly unchanging, God himself. Are you tired of broken promises? God keeps all of his promises. 
God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Numbers 23, 19. We can count on him. We may fail him. We, we may misstep, but he will not fail us. Amen? Surely you know moments in your life where you have relationships that completely break down. And then in an attempt to restore, in an attempt to move forward, there's this thing to say, please, will you look forward with me based on the new me, based on these promises, based on where I'm going to be, not where I was. I'm asking you to see the new me and let's go forward together. Do you realize you don't need that with God? Because God has never asked you to have faith in the new Him. He's always been faithful from the beginning. This is where he's, John is trying to say, ground yourself in the certainty of your unchanging God. Let that be a rock under your feet. Are you tired of inconsistent love and unfaithfulness from others? God is faithful. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Lamentations 3, 22-23. The dictionary defines faithful as true or trustworthy in the performance of duty, the fulfillment of promises or obligations, consistent, worthy of belief or confidence. When the Bible says God is faithful, it means we can trust Him, rely on Him, depend on Him totally and without reservation. He will do what He says. He is consistent and does not change. Brothers and sisters in Christ, hear me. You know Him who is from the beginning. That is a massive anchor to fix on the unchanging, eternal nature of God. Be certain in this. Rest in this. Hope in this. John doesn't stop there. He adds emphasis, I write to you children because you know the Father. We know Him who is our Father, church. When we're talking about knowing God, the clarity and special particularness of knowing God as Father is so sweet. Beloved, we are His chosen, His adopted, His forever loved children. Church, God is a good, good Father. Some of you, you don't have a healthy blood family. Your upbringing was hard. Some of you don't even know who your blood family is. Some of you do know, but don't like your father. Your blood father. Some of you don't know what it's like to have a faithful, loving Father. But if you truly belong to Jesus, then you know the Father. And it's so important that you know and love your Heavenly Father. That you walk in the certainty of His steadfast love for you. 
truth of God's adoption is good news because we who were separated from God because of our sin, we were children of wrath, as Paul states in Ephesians 2. But in Christ, we're now children of God. We are His kids of grace. And that means so much to us. Because God is eternal and does not change, we can build our lives on Him and have a sure foundation. Only in God, only in our Father, is this true. So, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I just ask you, Christian, where are your eyes fixed lately? Some of you are feeling pretty undone because in the midst of the storm, you're really focused on the storm right now. But don't forget Peter. Peter walked on the water as long as he was focused on Christ. He only began to sink when he got his eyes and his attention on the storm. When he, maybe he began to think, look mom, look what I'm doing. And he made it about him. And when Jesus scoops him up out of the water, he says, ye of little faith, is, is that you lately? Are you sinking because you are fixed and held to and trying to find your grounding in the uncertainty of the circumstances of the temporal? No. Fix yourself on Christ. Fix your gaze and your faith and your hope in Him. And walk on the water, church. That he would use your days for his good purposes. For you belong to him. And there's nothing sweeter. And when we see that rightly, then we don't hang our hat on the circumstances. If God would ordain that you who are married would be a widow at day's end, you have a living hope in God. You walk by faith, not by sight. You don't throw in the towel. Why? Because you belong to the Lord. And because everything in this life that you have belongs to Him. Even the assignment of those days, the assignment of the days of your parenting with your children, or the job that you're in, or, or the health of your body, that all belongs to the Lord. It's for His purposes we live these days. We're not building our kingdom. We're building His in the midst of a very broke-down tempor temporary thing. Where is our faith at work? Where is our hope? Are our eyes fixed on what is unseen, not what is seen? With God, all things are possible, church. We walk by faith in Him. To wrap up our time this morning, I want to read you Paul's words in Colossians 2, 6-8. I think they resonate a lot with what John's been saying here. It says, Therefore, as you receive Jesus Christ the Lord... So walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Just as John is doing in our text, Paul is reminding the church in Colossae that who they are in Christ and what it looks like to live out their faith and confidence in God being firmly rooted and built up in Him is the way we're not taken captive by false teachers or empty deceit or human tradition. That we're rooted and built in Him. Church, I tell you this morning, take this to your core. 
It needs to revolutionize the way you think and the way you pursue your days. Jesus will not be another thing in your life. He is your life. Supreme and sufficient for all of life. There is no moving on to other Gospels. Can I say, you don't need something else to happen to your life if you have Jesus. That's Jesus plus something else. That's not the Gospel. You are in Christ. You are rooted and redefined and built up in Him. The problem, though, is all too often our flesh spins us to to think that the to put Jesus aside and think the answer to this is in something else. Do you see that's chasing after another gospel? When we lose when we do this, we lose sight of our certainty that's grounded in him. When we truly see how supreme for life Christ is, we abound in thanksgiving no matter what we face. Rejoicing even in our sufferings, as Paul said in Colossians 1.24. Giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Jesus Christ for you. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5.20 Is there pain? Is there sorrow? Is there hardship? Yes. Yes and yes. But when we experience those things, it's always on the foundation of the joy we have in Jesus. So like Paul, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I plead with you, don't dismiss this truth. Some of you are missing who Christ is through and through. You're claiming Christianity. You claim Jesus, but you live your lives like you don't know the fullness of who He is to you. You're not standing firm in Christ. You're not abiding in the vine. You're not delighting in His Word. You're you're compartmentalizing faith and you're somehow calling it good enough. And I know many of you are in the middle of hard things. some, Some very painful things. In this life, there is real hardship and pain. Death of loved ones, financial distress, destruction from addictive habits. Selfishness of a loved one that rips apart families. Broken relationships where one party's content not to reconcile. Your health is failing you. Your workplace is working against you. Working. Know who you are in Christ. And stand firm for He is sufficient. Don't just say, yeah, 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 okay, okay. No, you have to take it into your soul. And let it redefine the way you think, the way you pray, the way you live. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. I'm thankful for God's word and his work in us through it today. I'm excited for what is to come as we continue in the passage, Lord willing. Let us pray. Let us worship him in response to his grace and truth at work in us today. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time together. What, What a glorious blessing it is to have your word, to 
to, to study it, to know it, to be refined and, and growing in it. To, that, that not only it affects our lives, but those that you put in our wake, those you put in our homes, those you put in our reach. Lord, that we would be excited, uh, be, be mobilized as your people in these days you give us. For you do not promise us tomorrow. Let us honor you in all these things today. We love you. And we need you. And we, and we worship you. But Lord, I just pray that we would just be still in you. In faith, grounded in you. What a joy it is to be your kids. To be kids of grace. Be worshipped. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.